Introduction to Running the Blockade. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Introduction A German admiral has remarked that the most valuable naval history lies in the dispatches and logs of naval officers. Our own Naval Record Society, by the line it has taken, thoroughly endorses this view, and has committed itself to the teaching of naval history from the mouths of the men who made it. Mr. Taylor's work, then, must not be taken as a mere record of personal adventure, however absorbing it be found from this point of view. As a picture of uh, exciting escapes, of coolness and resource at moments of acute danger, of well-calculated risks, boldly accepted and obstinately carried through, it has few rivals in recent sea history. But its deeper value does not lie here. Over and above its romantic interest, it will be recognized by students of the naval art as a real and solid contribution to history, for it presents to us from the pen of a principal actor the most complete account we have of a great blockade in the days of steam. The important part that blockade plays in naval warfare is a thing hardly recognized outside professional ranks. For the general reader, the grand maneuvers of a great fleet in chase of the enemy and the stirring hours of some decisive action throw into oblivion the tedious months of dull, anxious, and exhausting work with which by far the greater part of the war is taken up. Yet it is hardly too much to say that during the most glorious period of our maritime history nine-tenths of the energies of our admirals were devoted to blockade. In the future it is possible that it will take even a higher place. Should England become engaged with a first-rate foreign power, single-handed, it is a recognized fact among naval strategists that in a week she could close every one of her enemy's ports and have a fleet free to reduce at its leisure everything he held beyond the seas. With almost any two powers against her, it is probable she could do as much, and it is the recognition of this power abroad which gives England, in spite of her military weakness, so commanding a position in Europe. The importance, then, of studying every scrap of information on the subject in order to perfect our knowledge of the art of blockade cannot be exaggerated and Mr. Taylor's simple and straightforward record of his experiences may claim to be perhaps the fullest contribution to the subject that as yet exists. Experiences of individual captains we have had, and read with the present work they are of high value. But Mr. Taylor has something more to tell. Not only did he run the blockade personally a greater number of times than anyone else, but, boy as he was at the time, he was the chief organizer of a great and systematized attack on the northern blockade, such as the world has never seen before. His operations may be said to have opened a new era in the history of blockade, and one which bids fair to have far-reaching consequences for every maritime power. To make clear his position and its dangers and difficulties, a word must be said on the general subject of blockade. Blockade, it must be clearly borne in mind, is of two kinds, the one military, the other commercial. The first concerns the belligerents alone, and consists in one of them, who has obtained a working command of the sea, imprisoning the other's war fleets in their own ports. It was this form of blockade which absorbed by far the greatest part of our naval activity during the great French wars. During the American Civil War it was considerably practiced, 
and from American sources may be studied in complete detail the efforts of the Confederate warships to escape the vigilance of Federal blockading squadrons. The second form, or commercial blockade, is one that principally concerns neutrals, and it was of course to this form alone that Mr. Taylor's operations extended. The international law which regulates its conditions as between neutrals and belligerents is shortly this. A belligerent, if strong enough at sea to close one or more ports of his enemy, may give notice to neutral powers that such port or ports are blockaded, and thereafter, if any neutral vessel attempts to enter or leave them, the belligerent may treat it as an enemy, and may destroy or capture and condemn it as an ordinary prize. To run a blockade, then, is an operation attended with all the risks of war. Indeed, a blockade-runner is in an even worse position than a hostile belligerent, for not being a combatant he may not resist the efforts of the blockaders to destroy or capture him. He is entitled to escape if he can, but a single shot or blow in his own defense makes him a pirate, and a belligerent capturing him may treat him as such. But it must always be remembered that for a belligerent to be entitled to exercise these high prerogatives, he must first have constituted a real and effective blockade. A mere declaration that a port is closed is not enough. It must be so closely watched and invested with an adequate naval force that no neutral can leave or enter without running present danger of being sunk or captured. Analogous to the rights arising out of an effective blockade, and always to be clearly distinguished from them, is the right of a belligerent to treat as an enemy a neutral vessel carrying contraband of war to his enemy's ports, and this right he may always exercise, whether the ports in question be effectively blockaded or not. It was this consideration, no doubt, combined with a desire to preserve a strict neutrality, and to see the South treated as belligerents and not as mere insurgents, that induced the English government to recognize the federal blockade as soon as it was declared. At the opening of the war, the federal government, in defiance of international law, declared the whole southern seaboard under blockade. It was a blockade they were then wholly unable to enforce, or even to pretend to enforce, but as most of our blockade runners carried contraband of war, there was very little to be gained by disputing the federal pretensions. Some injustice, no doubt, was thus done to the South, but it was more than counterbalanced by the advantage they gained in that the recognition of the blockade made them indisputably belligerents. For these reasons our government thought it wise to waive its neutral rights and submit to a paper blockade which did not exist. As the northern power increased at sea, the blockade became more and more effective, and by the time Mr. Taylor had got fully to work it may be said to have been something more than a pretense. Finally it became very strict and thoroughly effective, and it is with this instructive period that his reminiscences are chiefly concerned. This declaration of blockade that could not be enforced at the time was not the only extension of belligerent rights which the federal government claimed and exercised in respect of blockade. As Mr. Taylor fully explains, they did not confine their operations against blockade-runners to the established practice of watching the closed ports. Not only did they cruise for offenders on the high seas, but they intercepted them close to the points of departure, thousands of miles from the blockaded ports. Nay, they even went so far as to attempt to blockade the neutral ports which the offending vessels were using as bases of operations. To most of these claims no objection was made, 
and there is no doubt that in any future war similar operations will be recognized without question, as within belligerent rights. In previous wars, a belligerent declaring a blockade had to concern himself with little more than turning back ordinary merchantmen, who had not received notice of the blockade, or cutting off small fry of the smuggling type that slipped over from adjacent coasts to take their chance of getting in. Such a thing as neutral merchants establishing public companies to build fleets of specially designed vessels for the avowed purpose of breaking a blockade which was thoroughly effective against ordinary types of merchantmen was a thing unknown to international law. And further, when these merchants stretched their rights as neutrals, so far as to establish regular bases almost in the enemy's waters from which to conduct their revolutionary operations, it was obvious that some latitude must be granted to the blockading power. No objection, therefore, was ever raised to his cutting off vessels avowedly constructed for blockade running at any point he chose. But when he attempted to blockade neutral ports from which they were acting, England put her foot down and compelled the Federal cruisers to draw off. In this she was clearly within her rights. But although the Federal claim to this bold extension of belligerent rights was undoubtedly illegal, it was not without provocation. It is another law of blockade that a vessel is not guilty and cannot be interfered with unless it is bound for a blockaded port. The system pursued by Mr. Taylor of establishing depots or bases on British territory close to American waters thus greatly increased the difficulties of the cruisers. Goods destined for the blockaded ports were consigned first to one of these bases, Bermuda, Havana, or the Bahamas, and on their way could not be touched by the northern captains. It was naturally a great temptation to these officers, as they watched the offensive traffic pouring into the runners' bases, to see that it did not get out. It is even conceivable that England might have been induced to wink at their proceedings. But it so happened that the first and only attempt to blockade blockade runners in a British port was made by the very officer who was the culprit in the Trent affair, and that, too, while we were still unsoothed from his last violation of our neutrality. The British government, therefore, happened to be in a very irritable mood with the North, and though they had uh, hitherto been inexhaustible in their sympathy with the federal belligerent pretensions, they now peremptorily stopped their complacency, and the North had to submit. Whether the claim made tentatively by the Northern government is destined to become recognized by international law is by no means clear. In the case in question, the neutral was too powerful to be resisted. Shortly after, however, the same scheme was actually put in operation by one of the most famous of Mr. Taylor's colleagues, the notorious Captain Roberts, the arch-blockade runner and a British naval officer. When the American war closed, the Turkish government had been trying for months to suppress an insurrection in Crete by blockading the island on the old lines. Hobart, whose nom de guerre as a blockade runner was Roberts, profiting by his recent experience, undertook to suppress it in a week, and his offer was accepted. The insurgents were living entirely on supplies sent them from Greece, and Hobart, having been placed in command of the blockading squadron, proceeded at once to blockade the Greek vessels in their own ports, and the Cretans were immediately starved into surrender. This and every other indication show a tendency for the belligerent rights of blockade to increase at the expense of the neutral. If this be so, 
then blockade must become a more and more effective naval operation and hence the importance of its study down to the minutest particulars from which any forecast of the future may be obtained for the non-professional reader one of the chief points of technical interest in mr taylor's book will be the light it throws on a great national question which periodically comes out in moments of alarm it is now a common subject for paragraphists to dilate upon how if england lost command of the sea her food supply would be cut off in a week or some other minute period and herself be brought to the mercy of her enemy however useful such prognostications may be for stimulating an interest in the navy they are full of fallacies and even dangerous as leading to demands for naval armaments so extravagant as to cause the taxpayer to turn his back on the navy altogether and button his pockets in sheer disgust to begin with if england lost the command of the sea it does not follow that anyone else would obtain it a fact too often lost sight of in naval discussion the thing does not hang in a simple dilemma you cannot say either england has the command or her enemy has it there is still the middle hypothesis that neither has it and this in all reasonable probability is the worst that could suddenly befall us the destruction of england's command of the sea is no child's play and even if three powers together succeeded in doing it it could only be at such a sacrifice to themselves as would leave the seas practically free to the operations of neutrals mr taylor's experiences show clearly how surprisingly easy it was for bold and expert captains with adequate vessels to run the most strict and effective blockades were england to become engaged in a great war the first step would be for numbers of her mercantile marine to pass to neutral flags and all these vessels with their crews would be ready-made blockade runners the moment there was a call for them and even assuming that by some extraordinary chance the british fleet for a time was suppressed with little or no damage to the enemy the precedents of the american war go to show that the navies of three powers absolutely intact could hardly avail to maintain a blockade of such a coastline as ours the conditions of blockade it is true have changed but the balance remains much the same mr taylor considers that searchlights for instance tell quite as much for one side as the other increased speed is at least as favorable for running as it is for blockading torpedo boats seem hardly to affect the balance at all for while they render the position of a blockading squadron less secure than formerly they on the other hand furnish it with ideal patrols quick-firing guns are all in favor of the blockader but on the other hand long-range guns of position are all against him compelling him to keep further to sea and so to cover more ground the extreme importance of invisibility too on which mr taylor insists shows how great an advantage a runner able to procure good smokeless coal would have over a force blockading the english coast which could not obtain it on the whole we may safely conclude that a commercial blockade is certainly no easier than it was in the sixties many indications from the following pages show how difficult it is to maintain the blockade even of a half a dozen ports if you are unable to intercept the regular runners at their points of departure this a force without undisputed mastery of the sea could never effect to a sufficient extent the lesson then that the following pages most clearly teaches is that the danger of the british isles being blockaded by any conceivable combination of hostile powers 
so as to reduce her even approximately near starvation, may be dismissed as outside the region of practical strategy. And in the next place they show us the vast importance of maintaining in our Navy an adequate force of vessels of a type calculated to render a commercial blockade really effective. What Mr. Taylor was able to do with one little steamer to prolong Lee's resistance is a lesson to be remembered besides Dundonald's operations on the coast of Spain. Such are a few of the considerations which Mr. Taylor's book suggests. Different men will draw different lessons from the facts it presents, but its value as the work of a man of unequalled experience in the working of a great blockade will be admitted by all and whatever weight may be attached to the author's conclusions from his practical experience, the little work will amply justify its existence if it in any way stimulates interest in the practical side of a subject which naval writers seem inclined to leave too much in the hands of international lawyers. Julian Corbett, May 1896 End of Introduction